Hi, welcome to the Edinburgh Space Data Capital podcast. I'm Kim McAllister. I'm Murray Collins, Chancellor's Fellow in the School of Geosciences. Murray, we've made it to the end of the series. Just. Just. How are you coping? I think we should do another one, what do you reckon? I think so. You seem to have enjoyed yourself. <laughs> it's a great time. I've made all sorts of new friends. Have you been enjoying yeah, sharing your knowledge? Yes, I have. But it's been really great getting these really detailed conversations with everybody and uh, understanding a bit more in detail about what they're doing and how all these little bits and pieces of the puzzle are coming together to to form the rich fabric of Scottish space. Very exciting. I know. Do you think people are beginning to understand that there's a space economy in this country now? I think so. Um, I've been contacted by quite a few people around the world, actually, about it, just variously and sort of email and, and LinkedIn and so on. Uh, and so, it's, yeah, we're obviously gathering momentum and um, certainly weren't the first people to to pick up on the notion. There was a, a space economy in Scotland, but I think every every piece of uh, communication like this helps and articulates what's going on. I've had loads of people saying to me I had no idea and now they've all become really excited about it so that's that's really cool for us. Well, you're, you're probably in a slightly different position I suppose because I probably live slightly more within the space bubble and so it's a bit more obvious to me but um, as you're going and speaking to like a much broader array of people then you're, you're going to meet people who are sort of stunned by this this <laughs> notion of having a space economy. But it's brilliant. I've enjoyed it. So Good. Well, we, let's do another one. Let's do another series, sure. Well, today we're going to talk about the international connections, because although we've focused on everything happening in Edinburgh, we're not just living in a bubble here. Uh, we have lots of cool stuff going on around the world, don't we? We do, indeed. So what I wanted to do was yeah, talk about the connections, not only internationally, but also between different sectors. So we're going to be talking to um, uh, Vladimir Ivan from Robotics to try and emphasize that there's a connection between people who are strictly working space and satellites and people developing robots because new robotic applications can, of course, be deployed for space. Then thinking about hardware and, and new sensors, we've got Steve Hancock coming in, who's one of our uh, superstars in the um, analytics of uh, space-borne LiDAR. Um, and he's going to be telling us about the global ecosystem dynamics investigation um, and the new technology which enables us to measure vegetation from space using lasers. Um, and then finishing up, we're going to focus on the connections between Scotland and the USA with a special guest dialing in from Houston, which is very, very exciting. I know. So all about, all about these connections today. All about the connections. And the first one we're going to speak to is Steve Hancock, who has been working with NASA for a while now, but has more importantly been trying to get to Edinburgh to work with the amazing team here. Let's bring in Steve. I'm uh, Dr. Stephen Hancock. I'm a lecturer in remote sensing at the University of Edinburgh. Um, before this, I used to work at the University of Maryland there as an assistant research professor, which is how I got involved in the, uh, the JEDI mission. Now tell us what the JEDI mission is. Uh, Dr. or Professor Ralph Tobias, 25 years ago now, he showed that you could use a technology called LIDAR, which is like a laser radar, and that can measure the mass of a tree for the densest forest in the world. It can measure the tropical biomass of the rainforest like no other instrument can, far beyond what a camera would saturate. These camera satellites, even radar satellites that Murray works on, they, they also saturate. So JEDI is um, a space-borne LIDAR, and uh, it'll be the first space-borne LIDAR specifically developed to measure forest biomass. 
And so it's going to map out um, forest biomass and forest structure far more accurately than we've ever had before. and should make us the first good map of global tropical biomass. That's amazing that that's even possible. Mm, yes, yeah, it's a fantastic instrument. Yeah. So it works by uh, pinging down a small pulse of light and that light scatters off whatever it hits. So as it comes down from space, it'll hit the top of the trees, a bit scatters back, it'll hit the bottom of the trees and everything in between. And uh, there's a very fast timer on board the satellite that's measuring it every nanosecond. So every 15 centimetres, we get a measure of how bright the light was. And so from that, you'll be able to see where the top of the trees are, where the bottom of the trees are, and how the leaves are distributed between those two. So we can measure the height of the tree and the density of the tree, and that gives us the biomass. That's just amazing that we can see all that from so many. I mean, how how far is that satellite from that tree in miles or in kilometres? So that satellite is it's mounted on the International Space Station. So Ralph Dubai, a professor of Dubai at University of Maryland, he leads the Jedi mission. Uh, we call him the Jedi Master. He likes to photoshop yesterday in the meeting. They photoshopped him as Saruman carrying a lightsaber. He, I'm sure um, he loves that. He, he does. He's a massive Lord of the Rings and, and Star Wars fan. <laughs> so back in 1997, he proposed the um, to NASA the vegetation canopy LIDAR mission. And that was going to be a standalone satellite to do exactly what JEDI does. Um, that got a few stages. I think they started building test lasers. And then, unfortunately, they decided it was too risky at the time. They didn't fund it. And so to save money, um, this, the International Space Station has um, various platforms on it. You can uh, borrow for a certain amount of time. You can write a proposal. It's got like a plug socket on it. And you can just you can build an instrument, plug it into the plug socket, and then space station provides all the power all the cooling all the heating and all the data transfer so you can you don't need to build a big satellite platform as an example isat 2 which is another satellite cost about a billion dollars to build jedi was 94 million so a real cut price satellite a cut price for, satellite only 94 for a, million pounds <laughs> for, for a big satellite for what it does it's uh, very cheap compared to i mean obviously the cubesats now bring that cost way way down but um the space station is at orbit you had your catch up with the NASA team yesterday, so this is hot off the press. How did that? Um, how did that go? Uh, excellent. So the, the instrument went up in December two thousand eighteen. It was actually accelerated six months. Uh, uh, the uh, it goes up on the uh, SpaceX uh, Falcon rockets, and there's a one launch those every six months or so. I'm not, I'm not entirely sure. And you can book a slot on one of those. There was a bit of a various issues, things were slipping and sliding, and they ended up leapfrogging. So one of the missions, they swapped Jedi forward six months, another mission backward six months, and that was to try and get Jedi up there when the leaves were on the trees. You want to, you know, you want to mention leaf area, so you want the leaves on the trees. So it went up in December, so it could start collecting that summer. So everything was accelerated, so the team really had to rush. So Scott Lufke at, at, um, at Goddard, he sort of does all the, the science operations center. He, built, he runs the the various computer systems that download the data, process the data, push the data to the data providers, who then give it out to the public. So it was a real rush and people were a bit worried. Uh, they'd get there, there were lots of various last minute decisions. Uh, it was a bit hit and miss about, well, it, it was a real effort to try and get it to that point, but um, it went up there, turned on in January for the first time, uh, did some various tests and in March started collecting data in earnest. So it's been collecting data for one year now and it's all gone almost exactly to plan. Beforehand, we, we said, we think we can have it on 60% of the time, because every time a, a rocket comes, you don't want to get the dust from the rocket into your into your mirror. So uh, I have to turn it off every now and again. Every now and again, the space station as well just flips upside down for I'm not sure what reason. And um, yeah, everything's going. We're getting exactly the amount of data we think we would have got. So we're on track to complete the mission. Um, the data is really good quality. Yeah, the, the first data is out there. People are doing good stuff with it. And uh, yeah, it all seems to be working well. 
Excellent. And what are you doing with the data? Who's using it? Is it governments? Is it commercial enterprises? So it's it's a it's a science mission. So um, Ralph is very interested in biomass and biodiversity. So that's what the data is primarily for. So anyone who's interested in biomass and biodiversity can download this this data. It, it should hopefully feed into the next round of IPCC reports looking at tropical biomass and biomass change as well. It really had the entire scientific community. There's a whole there's thousands of papers published, academic papers published every year about the tropics, the tropical biomass, the change of the tropical biomass, predicting how that's going to change, looking at deforestation rates. Um, so this data can be used by all those users. So Ed Mitchard, he's built maps out of this. Uh, Sasan Saatchi at JPL, he's done some big global maps. It's primarily aimed at the academics who will then put it into their reports that will then feed into to governments, international and national government agencies. That's amazing. You must be so inspired by your work. Oh, it's fantastic. Some of these people, I mean, this is a mass, I'm a very small cog in this huge machine, but you know, Professors Tobias, Matt Hansen, uh, George Hurt, these are all incredible people, came with these amazing ideas you know, 20, 30 years ago and still doing incredible stuff now that the instrument's finally there to provide the data they need to run their, their stuff. It's incredible seeing what they're doing. And, and Ed Mitchard at Maryland, uh, Edinburgh as well, he's going to use it to do his work, I'm sure, as well, and, and find something really exciting about degradation of forests. And I'm interested in your path, because were you always interested in space and lasers? How did you, like, what did you do after school? Uh, so at school, it was very clear I was never going to be an artist or a historian or a writer or anything like that. <laughs> My skills are very much in in science, in maths and physics. I, I grew up just outside the outside York in a small village called Moormonkton, and we were right under the flight path of RAF Linton-on-Ouse. And any aircraft would always come and visit there, so the Red Arrows always go there and do a display to practice every year. Every day there was something interesting flying overhead, so I became a, a bit of an aviation enthusiast. My dad took me to the local air shows and got very interested. Started working at my local air museums, working at uh, Elkington Air Museum, fixing up the old Cold War bombers there, getting them to do air shows, that type of thing. When I went to university, that's what I thought I wanted to do, was to go and work into aircraft. Careers, they you know, talked to British Aerospace, talked to Slingsby, worked out what people wanted. And you could do either aeronautical engineering or physics seemed to be the two things that people wanted. And I thought if I did physics, I could do that, or I could go off and do, you know, black holes or... And then I went to university and got really interested in more lasers and laser physics. That's That was the bit that I probably understood the most. Quantum mechanics was a bit too massy, abstracted for me. Special relativity as well got a bit, a bit too much for me. But with a laser, you could actually shine it, you could see it. So I got quite interested in that. And then uh, finishing my degree, uh, I saw an advert, the, the email that ran all the universities saying, oh, there's this job here to uh, work out how lasers can measure trees. I thought that sounds quite fun. So I, I just applied on the, on, on the back of that. So I sort of snuck in there. But uh, it turns out I worked with this uh, Professor Lewis and he was, He's probably the, one of the most mathematically clever people I've ever met. Um, you sit down with him, it's, every meeting's exhausting trying to work with him, but he was you know, <laughs> the world leading expert on the mathematical modelling of these satellites and how they measure the Earth. So, And then through him, I got into this whole world. He, he worked quite closely with uh, various people at Boston University who run some of the NASA missions, the, uh, the MODIS. And so he sent me off to do field work with them. Uh, they were also working with Ralph DeVire, so I met them all uh, back in 2008. We went off to uh, California. Um, good thing about satellites is they can't see through clouds. So if you want to do any ground validation, then you have to go somewhere where there aren't clouds. So California or Australia can't do any field work in Britain. So. That's amazing. And now you're in Edinburgh. And are you settled here or is this just another stop on the journey? I'm hoping I'm settled now. So uh, we, uh, me and my partner are hopefully going to start house hunting any minute now, as soon as this pandemic is over. So um, yes, uh, I, I mean, I've wanted to come to Edinburgh for years. I 
I worked on snow for a bit, and that's something that really affects the weather. If there's snow there or not, it changes the you know, changes the surface temperature of the ground, changes the weather cycles. So the leading the country's leading snow expert, Professor Rich Dessery, he's at Edinburgh. So he has that. He has the expertise in the snow. He could use people who can measure trees miraculously to help his snow models. I've wanted to work with him for years. You also have people like Ed Mitchard who can actually take this data and put it into policy and actually do, you know, useful maps. And then Murray Collins, who's catapults it all up into the stratosphere of, of policy and politics, and you know, invites you know the, uh, the what was it the ambassadors to, to for American ambassadors to Scotland and that type of thing. So all these things are happening in Edinburgh as well. And then you also have the companies like Metrica doing taking the data again and um, really helping people make use of it. So I think. In terms of the different skills, also Matt Williams as well, who again feeds into the IPCC reports and has real, real impact on the world. My sort of very technical uh, methodsy skills, I thought Edinburgh I could plug in, uh, help, or work with all these different people, and um, do something really exciting. And Edinburgh, I think it's the one place in the country where it has all these parts, and they were just missing a, a small laser expert part. So I sort of tried to plug that little hole, and luckily, uh, luckily they uh, they picked me. This is what we keep coming back to in this podcast is, I mean, it's all very high level science, but equally, it's all really cool people all working very closely together who all got on really well, which I do think is important when you're working on such important research, right? So yeah, you need to, you need to be friendly. I mean, you spend a lot of time, spend a lot of late nights trying to get these things working. Um, you need to you need to like the people you're working with. And luckily, um, at Edinburgh, everyone's very nice. Same at Maryland as well. We had uh, some incredible people there, like Lauren Duncanson's uh, sort of the real social hub of the mission and also an incredible scientist as well. So it was great to have her, you know, organising happy hours. We'd all go out and relax. And, you know, the, the chief Landsat expert from NASA would be there and even got a chance to meet uh, Piers Sellers. He, he did his undergrad at, at Edinburgh. If you go upstairs above my office, in fact, in Edinburgh, um, his, his mission patch is there from his uh, astronaut days, but he... He was here in America, uh, in Britain. He did a PhD. He went to America, and he wrote um, land surface models, which now underpins the Met, UK Met Office land surface model and many others around the world. He wrote this stuff, uh, did this for a few years, uh, worked out how to you know calibrate a, a weather model with satellite data, uh, and then became an astronaut in two thousand. Did three different space missions, um, and then uh, fortunately he died two years ago. He, he caught cancer, unfortunately, and died. But um, absolutely incredible man and got the chance to meet him and, and hear his enthusiasm and see, you know, even how excited he was about all these new technologies and how it could help improve our understanding of the world. Uh, uh, but yeah, through a happy hour and, and incredible <laughs> over inspiring beers, people. that's where the o- best conversations beers, happen. Yeah, beer, beers and fish tacos. Brilliant to hear from Steve. Uh, how did you find the interview, Kim? Is that another mind-blowing one for you? Another mind-blowing. Because we, we've we've talked about vegetation uh, monitoring and mapping from space, but this is a slightly different technology. And I know, of course, you've already played with the uh, the satellite data from Sentinel. I'm something uh, of an expert now. Yes. I'm yeah, <laughs> but this is a different technology. So, what did you make of it? I just thought I loved his enthusiasm for his subject and the fact that he's always just moved to wherever he could be, so he could work with the team that he that he admired and that he wanted to be a part of and what he's working on the Jedi program just sounds incredible what a what an amazing thing to have someone like that in Edinburgh University it is and uh, he's come from from NASA or continues to work with NASA but he's also right here in the School of Geosciences so that's fantastic and a, another another great asset 
credit to the university. Absolutely. Um, and a good guy. I've also invited him to our podcast party, which we mentioned last yeah. week. <laughs> well, I don't know exactly how we're going to manage this, but um, yeah, hope, I've had so hopefully many in the summer we, we, measure, we measure out a grid with, I don't know. Like with two, the amount of um, mathematicians and physicists that we know, I'm sure we can think of a useful <laughs> system to do this. I actually saw hats and uh, <laughs> you know those noodles you get in swimming pools. People are wearing hats with noodles on yeah, them. What, what do you get in swimming pools? You say noodles. Noodles. You know those like um, I don't, polystyrene. I don't know what you... Yes, you do. Polystyrene should, noodles. Polystyrene oh, should be no environmental catastrophe. Yeah. I know. I'm sorry. <laughs> but if you if you attach them to a baseball cap, then you have a two-meter distancing tool right there on your head and you look really cool right. while you're doing it. So that's what we'll be wearing at the podcast party. Okay. Well, maybe, maybe you will be wearing that for the podcast party. I don't think I will. Well, you can just catch the coronavirus on your own terms. I'll be wearing that. <laughs> <laughs> Let's move on. Let's move on to Vladimir and the um, National Robotarium. I've been really looking forward to this one, not, not least because we have uh, an opportunity to talk about the connections between robotics and and space. And uh, yeah, as we are saying, I mean, space is just another form of um, application of technologies really. We have a very special guest in the ground floor of the Bay Centre, Valkyrie, this uh, fully articulated humanoid robot. And, I will never uh, forget the first time I saw that robot. <laughs> it was at one of your events at Bay Centre and I walked in and this big glass fronted laboratory with this honestly just looked like an astronaut standing there. And I was like looking through the glass oh. going, what is that? And the guy next to me went, oh, that's Valkyrie. And I said, oh, what does she do? And it turned out it was Vladimir Ivan standing next to me. And he told me all about what she does. And I just thought, this has blown my mind yet again. Amazing. I'm so pleased to have him on the podcast. So let's have a chat with Vladimir. So my name is Vladimir Ivan. I am a senior researcher at the School of Informatics, and I am uh, working and doing research uh, within the Edinburgh Centre for Robotics. And we are based uh, predominantly at the Bay Centre. And the star of the show, as far as everyone who can see into your part of the base centre, is Valkyrie. Could you tell us a bit about her? Yeah, so Valkyrie is one of our uh, key, or I would even say flagship platforms. Uh, we have started working on Valkyrie in uh, February 2016. Originally, when we uh, when we when we sort of started talking to uh, NASA, where Valkyrie was uh, developed. We were looking sort of a little bit on, can we do some more interesting robotics? I mean, we've been doing robotics research in Edinburgh for a long time. Like, can we scale it up? Can we can we be uh, working with, with some more interesting platforms? And at the same time, NASA was looking for building these humanoid robots that would have the shape of a of a person and can be can be sent to stations on Mars where they can be walking around in the habitats and setting them up, preparing them for people. We were also really interested in this this type of, uh, you know, you have a robot that has the uh, shape of a human, but can we program it? Can we make it so that it can have the features, can have the dexterity, can have the intelligence to do the things that you would expect of a, of an astronaut somewhere on a on a space station? You know, some things may require a lot of thinking, but uh, turns out astronauts do a lot of uh, janitorial work, uh, checking if uh, all the systems are working, replacing filters and so on. And these are a lot of, these are a lot of work that definitely robots can and, and should be doing. And was it easy to get Valkyrie to Edinburgh if she was designed by NASA? So we were uh, sort of luckily at the right time in the right place. NASA uh, has just finished designing or redesigning Valkyrie 
for a robotics challenge for uh, responding to disasters. So sending robots to places where, you know, the building may have collapsed or there's radiation in a damaged power plant. And uh, they were just bringing up the project back to, you know, can we now use this robot to send it to Mars? And uh, we were, we are a group that specializes in uh, software algorithms, making robots move, understand what's around them. And we were looking for a platform that, that we, could, uh, we could do all of these experiments on. So we started the discussion. It took a little while. We were dealing with a government organization that is not exactly working like a company where you go and say, can we purchase something from you? So we had to go over some uh, bureaucracy, but was, I think it was about a year that it took us before we managed to get Valkyrie sort of a signed off and, uh, and everything, everything was in place. Yeah, we went to the NASA JSC Center for training in January 2016, and then a couple of weeks later in February, we then we then received the robot. How did they get her to you? The robot actually comes in different parts. Uh, you can take off an arm and a leg, so it does dismantle into this very handy, heavy-duty uh, transport cases, and uh, you can just ship those uh, using using the regular uh, shipping companies. Quite quite a high insurance premium, I would assume. How much is the it- Valkyrie worth? Well, our investment in Valkyrie was around $2 million, whatever that amounted for, uh, amounted to in, in uh, pounds back in 2016. The important part here is that this is uh, a very unique platform, that uh, there are only four of them uh, in the world. We have the only one outside of the US. The other ones, uh, one is still, I believe, in uh, Northeastern University in Boston. And uh, NASA keeps a couple of them that they collaborate with uh, different people to build different demonstrations and sort of develop the robot. That's so exciting that the only one outside of the US and one of only two outside of NASA is in Edinburgh. That must make you really yeah. proud. Uh, yeah, it's, uh, it's it's been a very interesting project. I mean, we we knew we were getting into something something big. The collaboration with NASA also brings brings a certain prestige and responsibilities with that. Uh, there were a lot of really good and talented people and are still in, involved with the project till now. So we we are aware of what we are working with, but also we had the ambition. We wanted to we wanted to sort of work with the state-of-the-art robots to sort of work on problems that don't just look for what we are what we want to solve for maybe today or maybe a couple months or a couple years but on problems that uh, reach a bit beyond that sort of in in uh, in a decade or two well this is what's so exciting about valkyrie and all the other work that you're doing in the in the robotarium is I mean, according to Professor Coquel, who's an astrobiologist, it will be another 10 years at least before humans are on Mars. So do you think Valkyrie is going to be key in getting people to Mars? So this was and is still the original idea of putting robots on Mars before we put people on Mars. And the work we do is contributing directly towards it. So, and this is actually something we were really, really interested in in Edinburgh and the Edinburgh Center for Robotics is looking at can we and how can we develop the level of autonomy, looking at uh, can we have control that allows us to do balancing and sensing that allows us to look outside of the robot as well as using everything that's on board of the robot, knowing how it's moving, combining all of this together to make a system that can walk around, uh, that can manipulate the world around it, use tools and so on. And this is exactly the kind of problems you want to be solving when you have a robot setting up a station, unloading uh, some cargo that has just arrived uh, on a spaceship, or even just even just keeping the keeping the station running. And this is 
these are all really interesting and really really hard uh, robotics problems. You're dealing with a world that you can model it. You can you can you can write down some equations, but there will always be always be things, uh, events, things happening that uh, that you cannot just predict ahead of time. So you need to build certain level of robustness and reliability into that. Mm-hmm. But I also want to add that this is not the only thing that uh, I mean, we are roboticists. This this is what we care about. Another another reason why we were looking for Valkyrie and looking into using Valkyrie is actually medical research. And while all of this robotics and space is sort of, a, as you say, a decade, maybe two, two out at the earliest, with the medical research we were looking for, can we understand human motion through working with a robot that can move, uh, move like a human? And this is actually quite interesting because what we're looking for is now not going for autonomy, but for some sort of uh, level of shared control. So uh, what we're looking for is, can we build robots and assistive devices that people can wear to help them either improve their performance or even better, if people have been injured to, like, to help them rehabilitate and uh, gain, gain their abilities back. And it turns out that the way how we control a humanoid robot translates some of the technology and the understanding of how the motion works uh, really well to how we can then help people and actually putting a person inside of a robot, uh, which is what these exoskeletons actually are, that is a uh, that is a really difficult problem because now you have to deal with this unruly human who's trying to uh, who's trying to go about their life and they they expecting the robot to help them and understand what they do and sort of building that trust in in uh, what the uh, what the robot can do for you that's that's quite difficult. I suppose there's been so many movies made that people feel very strongly about robots, rightly or wrongly, and whether they think they're going to take over and, and things like that. But your research does sound fascinating that, you know, in, in building a, a robot capable of living in space, you're actually helping people living on Earth. Yeah, and I have to say, so we try to work on this sort of cutting edge technology. And the aim is that this will lead towards uh helping people to work in uh, in places where they otherwise either could not or it would be too dangerous and we do this we do this for space uh, we do this for offshore uh, it's either oil platforms or renewables where it might be dangerous to, to travel to them uh, we do this underground for mines and caves uh, we're still working on the technology that we need to get there but what's really interesting is that if you take a really complex and difficult problem like this, you start generating this bleeding edge technology where you've been working on a different problem, but you can then apply it to another area. So this is where we take a lot of what we work in here and uh, find applications in medicine for rehabilitation. We do a lot of work uh, with more standards out of a warehouse and manufacturing where uh, a lot of what we learn on uh, Valkyrie and similar, uh, similar more complex platforms then really well translates into what uh, companies, SMEs, businesses can use within a shorter time, maybe uh, within a year, two, five, sort of where, where it makes, uh, where it translates into, into some economic impact. Vladimir Ivan there, who managed to get the only NASA bipedal robot over to Edinburgh that's not in the United States, which I think is an incredible feat. It is indeed. Major kudos. Yeah, it's an incredible thing to see firsthand, isn't it? Yeah, it's just amazing. She's so amazing to look at and then the the tasks that she can perform and that she's a woman. I quite like that little detail. That's good. 
good, very good detail. And I think um, what a lot of people say when they when they see Valkyrie for the first time, it's like a real sort of inspiring thing to see because it's a manifestation of people's aspirations and the the idea of it uh, being a new frontier, sending robots out into space. So it's, I think it's a bit more tangible than talking about satellites and so on. We don't we don't have any satellites on display yet. Right, it's time for the star of the show, Murray. I'm so excited. It is indeed. Let's uh, bring on David Alexander, OBE, Director of the Rice Space Institute. So great pleasure to have him on the show and uh, I think our final guest for the series. Yep. Is he Is he not? So uh, very, very high. fitting way. Mm. Um, yeah, well, I think the whole uh, series has been a, a high. We've met some fantastic people along the way. But I suppose it's it's good to have this final connection now to overseas and to, uh, to the USA and hear a bit more about what's going on in, in Houston and the Rice Space Institute. My favourite part about this interview was a bit when I said to David, oh, Maurice just texted me and, and said he wants to join this interview. Shall I let him in? And he said, oh, well, he can't ask me any difficult questions, which I think is brilliant. But he thinks you're going to ask him difficult questions when he's a professor <laughs> of astrophysics at the Rice Institute in Houston, Texas. Well, I could have been, I could have been swatting out for months, you know, just for, just for that opportunity. He's a really, really nice guy and I really like how he's building the links between Scotland and Texas and he's very keen to help people and to make the introductions to NASA and all the big players if he can. Yeah, exactly. And that's, that's really important to have that network, uh, not, not just across the UK but around the world. So here we go, let's speak to David Alexander OBE. My name is David Alexander. I am a professor in astrophysics at Rice University in Houston, Texas. I'm also the director of Space Institute at the university. I'm originally from Glasgow in Scotland. I guess I don't have to say in Scotland, right? But I'm originally from Glasgow. And I've been in the United States for 26 and a half years now. And I love that you have not lost your accent. What do you miss about Scotland, though? Uh, well, I can get iron brew here, so that's not one of them. Phew. We can get iron brew and we can get HP sauce and pies and stuff like that. So we're, we're well catered for there. I, I mean, I kind of I miss, I keep thinking about coming back. Uh, you know, I think I'm a bit, almost a bit jealous now when I see all the stuff that's happening and being very proud of it. Uh, you know, it's kind of like, uh, you know, so that's why I'm trying hard over here to make much stronger connections back to Scotland for for people here in Houston and vice versa yeah. because um, it gives me an, it gives me an opportunity to be you know to get home and um, and to help what I can I mean I got free education in Scotland and uh, I kind of resisted leaving for a long time but you can only resist so long what are you working on right now well so um, I've done a number of different things I mean obviously I'm in the the on the astrophysics side my PhD was in early universe cosmology stuff, but I switched to solar physics or so studying the sun, which people find kind of funny from coming from Scotland. But I think, uh, you know, Glasgow has a very strong solar physics group and always has. And so I came over to the US to work on space missions to study the sun. Uh, and what we've been doing lately is taking all that knowledge and applying it to these new exoplanet systems. As you probably know, there's now some almost you know, 4,200 planets have been found around other stars and everyone likes to talk about the the Goldilocks planets, the habitable zone planets. And one of the things that's missing from that conversation is uh, how that star, how the planet is interacting with the star. And we know an awful lot about that uh, when we think about the sun and the earth. And so we're trying to apply that to these exosystems and, and, and look at star-planet interactions. So, so that's on the kind of research side. Um, I'm also with a colleague in bioengineering building a hyperspectral imager for, for NASA, which was a, a technology used for studying cancer and tuberculosis cells. So it was an imaging system, 
but we've now developed it glibly. What we what we did is take took the microscope away and put a telescope on instead. Cool. And so now we're building we're building this um, this detector for for NASA to sort of study the Earth, understand the pollution in the water, understand uh, land management. Maybe potentially, I would like to see this help with uh, you know, humanitarian responses, where you can provide detailed information on the ground or off the ground, so to speak. So that's a kind of the two research areas I'm working in. And then as with Space Institute, of course, I'm involved in lots of different things. I'm working a lot with the Spaceport Project. I mean, I'm a Global Scot, so I've been working a lot with the Global Scot Program. We just had a conversation yesterday um, about how to get more uh, Scottish companies uh, engaged in space. And uh, actually this morning, my first conversation this morning was with a, a small startup company who does virtual reality training software in Glasgow. Uh, it's just a small four-person company there, so trying to get get them connected. And yeah, so these are the kind of things, you know, just working to to sort of broaden the scope of space. We obviously we do a lot of public outreach from from the university perspective. If there's a, a connection, perhaps to NASA in particular, that I can help with, then that just is a thrill in itself. And it's very exciting. And Murray actually has just texted me and asked if he can join this call. So what do you reckon? Should we let him in? Yeah, his questions have to be easy, though. <laughs> well, you know what he's like. You're not allowed to ask him any difficult questions, Murray. <laughs> so where, where, where have you guys got to? I was just talking about how great uh, you guys were in Scotland and Edinburgh and, and how the services part of the industry is the big part. And that, okay. that means... Being, that yes. means data. Yeah. Yeah, we've we've talked about what he misses about Glasgow, and we've made sure that he can get <laughs> Iron Brew in Texas, so we're all good. And uh, we were just beginning to speak about Edinburgh's ambitions, and I wanted to actually, because you'd mentioned the spaceport, David, and yes. the, and the the surprising issues that you have around getting some publicity for that. And I was just saying that it's quite difficult for Scottish people to understand the Scottish space ecosystem. And I wondered if there were parallels there in terms of building an ecosystem and making people aware. I think there are. Because I think again, one of the parallels I would say, which may surprise people, I mean, it's, it's not it's not surprising when it's such a new industry in Scotland across the board, not just the satellite production, but now that they're even talking about launching satellites, that uh, you know people don't fully understand what that entails, what it means, and whether Scotland could even do it. They're used to thinking of NASA, and they're used to thinking of the United States. Um, but what happens in, in Houston? We are all rockets and astronauts, right? This is the, this is the capital of human spaceflight. And so everybody has grown up with the space, with space as a theme, if you like, you know. And so, and so you'd think that everybody is really, really knows everything about space, the space world here. But it is very siloed, so to speak. You know, it, it really is focused on human spaceflight. And so, trying to come up with the concept of a spaceport that is potentially launching, we, we can maybe talk about this a little bit more as we go. Um, Houston is. We have in the Greater Houston region seven million people, and so uh, you cannot just launch a rocket. If something goes wrong with that rocket, somebody's going to die, and there's just there's no avoiding that. So we cannot launch rockets, even though we're called a spaceport. And so what we're trying to do is build a kind of industry around the concept. We can do horizontal launch, and we can talk about Presswick a little bit, but we can do horizontal launch. But there's not many companies that are doing that right now, at least for from the commercial perspective. Virgin Galactic. Um, is obviously the big, the big named one, and they're 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 based elsewhere at the moment. So what we're trying to do is use the spaceport as a as a kind of hub and a catalyst for other kinds of space related industry, which includes potentially satellite services, and that is a an unknown quantity in Houston. 
So that itself is where the challenge comes in. It's not that we're not, we don't know about space and we're not excited about space. It's that that's not something Houston does. And so that turns out to be an interesting conversation to have. You know, we had that we got our the Houston Spaceport license in June of 2015. So it's almost five years now. And um, it's a slow, slow build, as, as, as you know. But even now, people are, what, we have a spaceport? I mean, there's articles in the newspaper all the time. And, you know, it's, it's a surprising kind of block in people's heads. And so our job, which is part of what we're supposed to be doing, is promoting all things space and, and the space industry and showing where it can benefit the community as a whole, and I, and I think you, Kim, you were on the uh, the webinar we did the other day. That's right. Yeah. Sort of hi- highlighting some of those strengths and where the potential is, and it really is all about when you when you're talking more broadly. And I think this is true in Scotland. It's not just about you know people like Murray and people like myself. It's about what that industry can provide to, and, and how the skill set that's in Scotland can provide what they can provide to that industry. And I think making that match um, is what Scotland's been doing and is and has been doing, in my opinion, um, particularly well. Excellent. That's wonderful to hear. So what else can we learn from how you guys are doing it? And because we obviously are talking about horizontal launch in Presswick and, you know, more launch potentially in Sutherland or maybe even further north. Murray's more of the expert on that than me. But what lessons do you think we could learn from, from Houston? Well, so, so I think, I would be I would be a little bit reticent about saying too much that you could learn for us because I think what we need to do is all learn together because this the, the whole spaceport so I have this phrase that my friends are sort of tired of hearing it's a little bit glib which is that um, right now we have so we created a few years ago we had our first ever um, spaceport summit international spaceport summit we actually had some people from Scotland at that first meeting uh, from from Presswick four years ago now we created a thing called the Global Spaceport Alliance. And so we have an annual summit and all of the commercial uh, spaceports in the United States attend. So that at the time, Houston was number 10. We now have 12. And then there are other people in the process of applying uh, into that conversation. And we've the, the last two meetings have been incredibly successful. We've had something like six or seven different countries represented. Scotland has not shown up again, so I'm, I keep berating folks about that. But um, the, the Italians are there, the Japanese, the Australians, uh, even Ecuador, who's thinking about a spaceport project. So we're trying to bring this together. And the reason I've mentioned all of that is because the key message I try to tell, we're, we're all potentially competitors, right? Because everybody wants SpaceX or everybody wants Virgin Galactic or everybody wants the, the industry to move to their particular site. And my comment for the last three or four years has been, we, do not have, a, we don't have an industry. So we can all compete for zero dollars or zero pounds, or zero euros, or we can work together, build up the industry, take that part of the market where our strengths lie, and learn from each other as we go. So it's not about us telling telling Scotland spaceports what to do, or what they should do. I mean, there are things that, we, that can help from some of these collaborations. It's really about learning what's best for all of us, and how we utilize the local local strengths that each each of the of the projects has. One of the things that, that the UK did learn from the US was when they moved away from the concept of a competition where there was going to be one spaceport and the UK government was going to fund that one spaceport. Um, they've now moved over to well several years now, but they've now moved over to the kind of US business model, which is in some senses, even though you, the, the money, the, the government is still supporting Sutherland, for example, and Yuki down in uh, Cornwall, 
the idea is that, I mean, Kim, you could basically propose to have uh, a spaceport in your back garden. <laughs> right, you can get your kids. In principle, you you could you could say, I want to do this. And you can put in your bid or you can put in your proposal to the government. Of course, they won't take it that seriously. But if they did, they would come and say, well, you know what? Your neighbours are a bit too close. You can't put the oxygen tanks in your back corner next to your shed. So um, we're, going to ha- we're going to have to decline your licence. We cannot give you a licence because of many, many reasons. We're trying to run it. But in principle... If you could have, if you had the location and you had the business case and you could do all the environmental protections, it's up to you whether you make money or not. The government is sort of a licensing process now instead of a funding process. And I think that's how it works in the US. We have, as I mentioned, we have 12 commercial uh, spaceports licensed already. I can guarantee you without naming names, not all of them are going to survive because everybody's talking about the same launch market. But Unless you can corner that market, you're not going to survive. I just thought, David, made the three key points. And just to re- reflect, it was the, uh, the three points were heritage, uh, competitive advantage, and then collaboration. I think because of the people that we have here and the, the kind of involvement that, that I have had and being able to promote some of what's happening in Scotland, I think there's a, an increased awareness of the potential. And I think I, I think going back to the Edinburgh thing, Murray, I think that the data part is much even, even broader because I think, for example, we were involved in a, a smart deep space habitat project. So this is all human spaceflight and I don't expect Scotland, I mean, we have one Scottish person who's been in space. So I don't expect Scotland to get into the human spaceflight. But in order for human spaceflight to work, it involves a human. <laughs> and that means uh, biomedical uh, monitoring. It means healthcare innovation. All these different things. So I think that's where a country like Scotland, who has these, and I'll come to the data in a second, but who have these skill sets and this training and these this expertise, can broaden where they apply it right now. And they can broaden it to the broader issues of space and energy and healthcare as a, as a, a group of applications for specific technologies, as opposed to individualized sectors with their own imaging technology, their own safety technology, their own monitoring technologies. And and the same applies to data because this does not work without data. And then so when you build up that capability and, and we, you know, there's lots of aspects to data, you know, but the biggest thing is how you interpret the data. And so everything from the, the human to, to the machine learning to the artificial intelligence, once you develop those technologies, the applications are almost endless. And so we proposed an artificially intelligent habitat. I actually called it HAL. If some of you, some of your uh, space nerds would remember the name HAL, and that, that may be why I didn't get funded. But, um, <laughs> but I think that, that, that bringing that human system interaction into play and how you process data, how you act on data, both either, either as a human or as a robot, becomes really, really important. And once you've developed that, next thing you know, you've got a technology for self-driving cars. So this is where I think that integration of components and skills that Scotland is developing right now from everything from what you, you're all doing in, I guess I should, in Texas, I should say all you all, that's the plural. Um, <laughs> everything that all you all are doing in, in Edinburgh feeds into that whole infrastructure. What they're doing in Glasgow is a component of that infrastructure. What they're doing in Aberdeen for, for the energy industry is part of that infrastructure. These are all part of a system that Scotland has at their fingertips. And they have innovation centres, they have enterprise zones, 
Uh, they, have a, they have a devolved government that's, that at the moment seems to be pretty smart. So, you know, everything's there. And it's just a matter of bringing it all together. And space just happens to be a nice, attractive hook, but it's only another application of technology. Sounds like you could be tempted back, David. Yeah, well, you know, yeah, I keep looking at it for different reasons. But uh, do you visit? There's, there's, do you visit a lot? I know you've had a couple of I trips cancelled this year, unfortunately. Yeah, no, no. I visit. I visit. I do visit a lot because, uh, again, part of this the, the global Scott thing, and part of the we we come at least once. This is where I met Murray. Actually, we were coming once a year to the data um, space conference at Strathclyde. And um, but we'd been coming prior to that. To, we visited Highland and Islands. We went up to Stornoway and looked at their project. Presswick and Ayrshire College. We spent a lot of time at. I was over last time. I was over was August, and we had uh, a couple of astronauts, and we were visiting schools in Glasgow. And we were supposed to do that again this June, but that's been, that's one of the trips that's not going to happen now. So we're thinking of coming back in August. Have you been to the Bay Centre yet, David? The the Bay Centre. Yeah. No, I haven't. I don't. Is that? Right. Well, I'd like to invite you to come along. This is you, you were talking about the importance of having places to bring all these technologies together in one place. And uh, the base centre is a, one of our new buildings, a new centre in the University of Edinburgh, and it brings together in one place our experts in artificial intelligence, parallel computing. We co-host the National Robotarium there, and our space innovation programme is there as well. That's right. You, have a, so, you guys have a robot, right? We do indeed yeah, in our, yeah. on, our, on our ground floor. So you'd be very welcome to come along and, and visit. We can uh, show you that actually we're putting that that pitch which you just described into practice, like bringing those technologies together in one place and uh, applying technologies to different domains. That's that's great to hear. I mean, I, you know, my, one of my favourite pictures is my handshake with the robot at the Johnson Space Center. <laughs> I love that picture. I know I know there's tough times at the moment, and everybody's been hit hard in lots of different ways. Um, Ultimately, we're going to come out of this, and hopefully sooner rather than later. And these are the technologies that are going to make the difference going forward. And they, as I said, they may not be—they may be developed for space, but they can be applied on the ground. Let me ask yeah. you both then a final question, David. What excites you most about space? Well, um, yeah, I think this doesn't get said often enough. But I think the inspiration it provides. You know, we we talk a lot. We've had a number of Apollo anniversaries uh, in the last couple of years. You know, people will talk about the various technologies, you know, the microchips and so on that came out. But the biggest thing that came out of the Apollo program was the number of people who wanted to become either astronauts, scientists or engineers. Scotland has a great heritage in the engineering side. And I think the space industry will be in Scotland will push that inspiration aspect. Um, I even visited my old school in Springburn. And people are just, they're just all these kids, I guess we have to call them young persons, but all these young people are fascinated by this. And you don't know which one in that room is going to be the next innovator for, for some technology, whether it be space or the internet or whatever. And I think that's, to me, the excitement that it brings. Excellent. What about you, Murray? What excites you most about space? Um, I, I do like the idea of inspiring people in, in, in the next generation. I think that we will go back to facing what is probably the, the largest challenge which unites us all, which is climate change and biodiversity loss. And so the power of satellite technology to be able to monitor what's going on in the planet and to develop actionable intelligence as, as a result of that, which will enable us to make better decisions. I think one of those little silver linings out of this uh, current crisis is that responsible governments are listening to responsible data 
and that will open up their eyes to the importance of having this informed this information in order to make these decisions and i think when it comes to climate change that's what we need and so i think you're right David Alexander there. That was fantastic, wasn't it? I really enjoyed that conversation. He's great. I really, I mean, a guy from Springburn who's now such an important part of the space ecosystem out in Texas. It's a great story and uh, I'm so relieved that you can get Iron Brew out there because I was really worried. <laughs> is, that, is that what you've taken from an entire podcast series so you can get Iron Brew in Houston? Listen, you don't understand how important <laughs> Iron Brew is to Scottish people. It's the first thing you look for whenever you cross the border. Right, well, I shall take your word for it. I'm sure some people will disagree. but uh, Or maybe <laughs> not, I don't, like I don't know. Do I don't know. Like I don't Iron know. I think it's a very unusual taste. Uh, I have it as a, uh, you know. If you're going to live in discuss- Scotland, you have to drink Iron Brew. It's part of the rules. I'm happy. I'm happy with my sort of IPAs and, and whiskies and so on. But I'm not okay, sure I'll ever quite fully adopt the uh, the Iron Brew. But <laughs> on a more substantial note, I think we've actually covered a lot this series. I mean, that's only eight podcasts, isn't I it? Know. We've run the whole gamut from obviously we did a lot on Earth observations, marine and. Um, terrestrial systems with forests but then we went into deep space and met, met Charles and talked about his work, work off planet coming interceptor yeah I'm excited about that although I might have to wait eight or nine years for anything to happen <laughs> <laughs> these, these space missions take an awfully long time don't they they do. Well, we'll we'll reconvene in twenty twenty nine. Maybe ahead of that, we'll do something in advance. I think we've covered an enormous amount, and then going right through to the robotics at the end there, and mm-hmm. um, and of course we've touched on business, the business mm-hmm. of space, uh, the blockchain aspects of um, new contract development with um, Robin's company, Trading Space. That was a really interesting, amazing connection between satellite data and financial services. Yeah, everybody's so passionate about what they learn and what they study and what they work on. And I love that that energy that everybody in this ecosystem has. Yeah, and I, I think actually that's what David just said, of course, wasn't it? The, the capacity of space to inspire is unparalleled. It just yeah, it captures the imagination in an unusual way. I suppose, what other reaction could you have at the, prospect of looking out into space and sending probes out to land on comets developing robots to go and walk around on mars i mean it's incredible i i remember watching apollo 13 when i was very young and being terrified and ever since then i was a bit scared of space so it's been really right okay i haven't heard anyone say that before oh what was so what was that the like the isolation or yeah just the the forgive the pun the alien nature of it the fact that you're leaving behind Hmm. everything that's natural and the things that you know and going into this place where humans really shouldn't be i guess and then and i think that that movie was very emotional and you know there was a lot of deaths and horrible things that happened and it just really upset me so i think ever since then i've been a bit scared of space but Luckily. Well, how do you feel now after having done the the podcast and having written the articles? Because yeah. you I mean you've you've become a, the the leading voice for space in Scotland now, I would say. Thank and you so much. your 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 attitude towards space, I hope, has has changed because it's not. I mean, it, it has so many different dimensions to it, as I think we've shown. Yeah, that's what I've enjoyed the most is just learning about everything. It's been from someone who two and a half years ago had no idea that Scotland even had a space economy to now being a complete space geek and very proud to call myself that. I've just found it really fascinating and inspiring. And there's something in every part of it that you can understand. You know, you would might think that it's very, very high level or very abstract, but actually you can relate it back to real life so quickly and so easily, I think. 
Okay, well, that's good to hear because you're no, no longer spaceophobic. No, no longer scared of space. I think it was the thought of being an astronaut that scared me, and I'm still not very keen to be an astronaut. I know that's one of your. Is it? Is it? Is it a danger at the moment? <laughs> unlikely. Unlikely. Living in lockdown has been enough of a challenge for me. Thanks. Is it one of your um, ambitions? I'd definitely go for it. Yeah. I mean, okay. it, maybe, maybe um, quick sojourn into the International Space Station and pop up. Yeah. Pop up. Okay, that's summer 2021 plan for Murray. <laughs> yeah, exactly. See, see if they got a, a slot for me next uh, next year. I think we but, should speak uh, to an astronaut in the next series, find out what that, that actually is like. Yeah, that that would be great, wouldn't it, to actually get the experience of, of being in uh, in orbit. Let's, yeah. let's see what's possible there. Yeah, we've got lots of plans for series two. We're just not going to share them yet, are we? Oh, no. Don't let, let any space cats out of the bag. <laughs> Well, I've loved it. I've, I've really enjoyed it. And um, yeah, for, if anybody's made it this far listening, thank you very much for doing so. It's been a really fun experience producing the podcast. And uh, and thank you, Kim, as well. This is. I hope, you, hope you've enjoyed it. I think you have. I've had a great time. Thank you. Thank you for sharing your expertise and opening up your contact book. Okay. Well, uh, I shall see you soon. See you for the next series. You can always uh, drop us a line on Twitter. He's at Murray B. Collins and I'm at Kim McAllister. Thanks for listening.